You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Before I begin, let me thank God for the gifts that we've given him to use those sacrifices that, that have been made to bring him honor and glory. Our Father and our God, we come to this place because we are in so much of a need of a Savior that we do not have things together and they do not always happen even by the way we would like to plan them. Father, as these gifts have been given, use them to bring honor to Jesus' name and for his sake, And for his use alone, for that, we give you the praise and we give you the glory. Amen. So, have you thought about pain? I know I have. In the last few minutes, I thought about pain. But how do you draw it? How do you explain pain? We know how to feel it. Some of you kids have fallen down on your bicycles and skinned your knee. That was not pleasant. Some of you may even have a brother or a sister push you down and make you cry. Why would they do something like that? Some of you adults remember those those occasions personally. You remember your kids doing the same thing to one another. That's painful. But as we get older, we develop a new kind of pain more personal, more intense, more long-lasting. Our life changes because of pain. The events of our life change. As you get even older still, you have children, and their pain becomes your pain, and it hurts you in a whole new way. I could never understand why my dad said, when I spank you, it hurts me more than it does you. (laughs) Liar. That hurt. I understand what he was trying to say. And as those kids grow up and get married, their pain hurts us even worse because we thought they knew better. And then we realize that this pain is a gift that keeps on giving because they have children and they experience this and it doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as it gets, kids. Okay? So, when you draw your picture, I think maybe you should draw some big tears coming down your face or maybe a broken heart. That's what I deal with all the time. I deal with people in crisis. I work with people in pain. Most of the people I work with don't have what we have. Most of the people in Alaska don't have what you have. What you take so for granted. You have faith. You believe in somebody who is in control of the universe, who has ordained everything that comes to pass. So nothing surprises him, even though it 
takes us and shakes us up and makes us wonder what exactly have we done? What do we need to learn? You also have something else. You also have each other. So when you fall, somebody's there to pick you up. When you crawl, when you cry, there's somebody there to wipe your tears. There's somebody to pray with you. There's somebody that understands not only what it means to be human, what it is to live in a failed world, but what it is to have a savior. The what it is to trust him, to sustain him. Who better to describe our pain than Dr. Luke? Third book in the New Testament. Third book who I explained to you wrote his book so that we would have proof that Jesus lived, that we would know why he came, and that we would see the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And in that section of chapter 4 of Luke to chapter 7, he describes and parallels Jesus' ministry with an Old Testament prophet. But this prophet didn't get a book. It's not Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's Elisha. We don't know much about Elisha. And we wonder, why? Why haven't we been told about Elisha? We know some of the stories, and I want to share with you one of those today. But as I do, to add to your picture, because I don't think you've started yet, but you might have, there's two children in my passage. One's a real children, and one's the person this person became. The real the real child is a little girl. She was a slave. She was ripped out of her house by a foreign army and taken away to serve. Not her mother, not her family, not her aunt, not her grandmother, but a strange woman. Think about that pain. What does it take for a little girl to get ripped away from home? At the end of the story, you'll hear about a little, a, a, not a little man, but a man, a strong warrior who became like a little child. Scripture tells us about it. And if you want to follow along, you can look to 2 Kings chapter 1. And I'm going to try to end in chapter 4, in verse 14. So 2 Kings 5, starting in 1, end in 14. But the reason I'm having trouble is because I'm thinking about the story and not thinking about the text. And so I, I really like that home, that, that song that tell me the old, old story. And so I don't like reading the story. I kind of want to tell the story. So it's not going to be quite the same as your Bibles say, but it's got, it's got the details. And because I forget, I've got the details down on my paper. Anyway, it starts out in chapter 1, I mean chapter 5, verse 1, that Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. The Lord had helped him 
and his troops defeat their enemies. So the king of Syria respected Naaman very much. Naaman was a brave soldier. I want to tell you this because the Old Testament wasn't written to the Syrians. It was the Syrians that took the Israelites captive. It was the Syrians who disrupted their lives and were not their friends. They came in and wreaked havoc on their lives. But this text says the Lord helped him, Naaman, very much. That should stir your stomach till you may almost want to throw up. Why would God help your enemies? Let me end my editorial and go back to that last verse. Naaman was a brave soldier, but he was a leper. One day, while the Syrian troops were raiding Israel, they captured a girl and she became a servant of Naaman's wife. Sometime later, the girl said, if your husband Naaman could go to the prophet in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. When Naaman told the king what the girl had said, the king replied, go ahead, I will give you a letter to take to the king of Israel. Naaman left and took along 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 new outfits. Wow. He also carried the letter to the king of Israel. It said, I am sending my servant Naaman to you. Would you cure him of his leprosy? Again, I'm glad I didn't get that letter. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in fear and shouted, that Syrian king believes I can cure this man of leprosy. Does he think I'm God with the power over life and death? He must be trying to pick a fight with me. As soon as Elisha the prophet heard what had happened, he sent the Israelite king this message. Why are you so afraid? Send the man to me so that he will know there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman left with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent someone outside to say to him, Go wash seven times in the Jordan River, then you'll be completely cured. But Naaman stormed off, grumbling. Why couldn't he come out of, and talk to me? I thought for sure he would stand in front of me and pray to the Lord his God, then wave his hand over my skin and cure me. What about the Albana River or the Farfar River? Those rivers in Damascus are just as good as any river in Israel. I could have washed in them and have been cured. His servants went over to him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you something difficult, you would have done it. So why don't you do what he says? Go wash and be cured. Naaman walked down to the Jordan. He waded out into the water and stooped down in it seven 
times. Just as Elisha had told him. Right away, he was cured. And his skin became as smooth as a child. When I started at Providence, I met Joan. I met Joan in a very, very awkward way. In some ways, very similar to how Naaman met Elisha. I don't want you to confuse me with Elisha in the slightest. But I met Joan because her mother was suffering from renal failure. And I went on my journey and stopped and talked to her. And about a year and a half later, she stopped in the office and made sure the administrative secretary had me stop and see her daughter. I didn't remember this woman at all. And I only learned about her from my conversation with her daughter. When I walked into her daughter's room, she was bald, frail, weak, but she had this endearing smile. She had a need, just like Naaman had a need. She had a need for someone to come alongside, for someone to listen to her pain, for someone who wasn't the family who had to listen to her pain, who wasn't a friend who was connected with her, but someone who could just be there. Didn't have to be me. God used it that way. Didn't need to be anybody. Just someone who was there because she was important. Because she was created in God's image. Somebody who didn't have anything to gain or anything to lose. But would faithfully be there and sit by her and let her cry and not be scared of the tears. When her mother told me about Joan or left the message, she said that Joan had stage four cancer. When I saw Joan, the nurse told me that her death was imminent. That means it may happen today. And she was all by herself. That's exactly where Naaman was. He was at the end of himself. He had been at the end of himself for quite a long time. You see, leprosy is a disease that affects your nervous system. In extreme cases, it kills the skin on the outside. And much like diabetes, it causes you to lose your feeling in your extremities. And it's contagious. So in the Bible, we find that leprosy is a very, very bad thing. And they put people outside the cities. And they keep them away from their families because we don't want anybody else to get sick. So when this happens, there is no hope. 
And oh my, are we a people who need hope. Joan needed a touch. Naaman needed someone to care for her. Naaman needed a miracle. Naaman was the commander of the joint chief of staff. He had the respect of the king. He would have been in the 8th century BC in the book of who's who in Syrian history. The Bible says that Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. The Lord helped him and his troops defeat their enemies. So the king respected Naaman very much. Can you imagine someone using those words about you? Don't we all want to be people who are respected? Commander, great, highly regarded, victorious, valiant. He was a man that had power, position, prestige. He was successful. He was a winner. He had everything going his way. He was wealthy. He was a hero. He was respected. He was admired. And maybe he was even envied. And then we have this letter, this three-lettered word, but. I hate but. I hate it when my kids said, but dad, because I know there's a reason coming. And here, but. He had leprosy. That's the author's conclusion. That's how he ends his introduction. He could have listed all his Naaman's accomplishments. In fact, Naaman could have been dealt, dealt with his accomplishments. Look at what I've done with my life. Look at where I find myself. But when we're sick, we don't find ourselves there. Maybe you've been there. Naaman's leprosy, as we begin this story, may have been in its infant stage. Not quite evident. We don't have people fleeing in panic at his presence. But it was there. In Scripture, leprosy is used as a metaphor for sin. Leprosy is contagious. It eats at you and eats at you and it eats at you just like sin. At first, it's simple. I can handle it. I can deal with it. And then it eats at you and it eats at you and it destroys you from the inside out. Jesus came that we wouldn't be destroyed from the inside out. He came to touch us, to come alongside us, to heal us. That's, a, that's our curse. That's our condition. This is who we are, whether we're in this place or we're out there, at work or doing ministry. This is who we are. I'm no better than you. I have those same problems. This is who I am. I'm broken. I'm failed. 
I'm not perfect. And I'm my worst enemy. Because I know all those broken places. And I can get dressed up nice, and I can come and stand in front of you, and I can put this big persona on, and I don't tell you all my pain and all my problems, because if I do, then you'll know I'm just like you. But I'm going to tell you right up front, you don't have to guess. I cry. You can talk to my wife. I cry for no reason at all. And I have a but, but I still cry because I still know how very, very broken I am and how much I need each of you and how much I need my Savior and how thankful every day that I can still walk around and I can still be here. But in that process of walking around the hospital, I see people who also need that cure. But oftentimes their hearts are so hard, they are so focused in their way, they have never seen anybody come alongside and care about them. So they push themselves upon them. So where do you go? Where is your cure? Where was Joan's cure from the disease that was ravaging her? Not too many people recover from stage four cancer. I don't want to hear those words. I don't want to go into those rooms because I know what they want. They want me to bring out a talisman. They want me to place the Bible on their bed as if somehow that's going to change it and make it all go away. And if I say this magical prayer, they're going to get better. I know that. And I know I'm not God. Too bad they don't know that. They think I've got a door right into his palace. And I do. And I have the key to that door, and it's Jesus Christ. And I go to Jesus Christ, and I intercede on that patient's behalf, even when they don't have a clue about what he's done for them. And their life and their thoughts is going to end here. In this hospital, in Anchorage, very, very soon. My life won't. My life and their life will go on forever. Good thing can be. Bad thing can be. Who's made the difference? Jesus Christ has made the difference. Have you applied that to your life? In most of our lives, we all have some form of leprosy. Our world doesn't like our, our de definition of leprosy because our definition only has three letters in it. Our definition is sin. We are sinful. We are broken. And we don't have a lot of control over that brokenness. The only control we have is to give it away to Jesus Christ. 
How do we do that? How did Naaman do that? Where did Naaman go? He went to a little girl. He took the advice of a little girl. How much does a little girl know? How much does a child know? Nothing. We run their life. She didn't have a life to, to live. She was broken. She was a slave girl. She wasn't just a maid. She wasn't just Cinderella. She was a slave girl. He listened to a slave girl. But what did she have that most of us don't have? She was a person that could look past Naaman's haughtiness. She could see him for who he really was. Do you have anybody in your life like that? That can see you for who you are? A person that was humble enough to see past who we are, that doesn't let their precision, their prestige, their finances get in the way. Who can do that to you? Who can humble themselves or who is so humble and meager and mundane that God can use that person to speak to your hard heart? Who is it? M. Scott Peck, in his book, A Different Drum, observes that lived honestly, life is a crisis. Difficult, surprising, overwhelming. If you read the Puritans, you will find over and over and over that they describe this life as a veil of tears. The problem with the Puritans is it's old English. And sometimes we can't get past that to see the heart of what they're writing because they have the same thing that we have that gets in the way. We don't realize that God has to speak down to us that he has to talk to us like babies saying goo, 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 ga, 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 which means nothing to anybody here. But everybody does it to a baby. But that's what God has to do to us. It's called the doctrine of accommodation. He comes to us to meet us where we are. We also need people who can speak the four C's to us. If you're taking notes, write these down. First C, concern. Someone who can speak the truth in love. Second C, commitment. Somebody who will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Someone who will be there. Third C, Confidentiality. Somebody who keeps your thoughts to themselves. Somebody who can trust you with their pain, realizing 
that it doesn't go anywhere. I think that's one, one reason why we don't see prayer meetings happening anymore because they turned into gossip sessions. And I know this about this, and I know this about this, and I know that the confidentiality is gone. Who can you trust? Who can walk with you? Who can share your pain? If we're going to use our situation to put down another or to raise us up higher than someone else, we're not people of confidentiality. We can't keep secrets. Fourth C, consistency. We need people who are there to make regular contact, to be there consistently. We need people in our lives who provide safety and security. We need prophets in our life who can point us to a cure. People who speak the truth in love but point us to Jesus. And even if we reject it, that they are consistent, they will continue to come back and point us to him. Because they too need a healing touch. As you look at the story, you have to look beneath the surface. Naaman had one third thing. We have our condition, we have talked about our cure, but we have Naaman's confession. Naaman had to know something about Israel's geography because where he started was up high. But where the Jordan River is, is way down low. That Jordan River runs downhill 2,000 feet. Start up in the mountains, come way down. That's why the Jordan River got muddy. It came down low. But Naaman just couldn't stop at the river. He had to go down deeper. He had to dip himself in seven times. The closest illustration that I can give you is my mom, to get my attention, had to say my name. And you all know exactly how, nine, how she said my name because everybody does it the same thing. Linnell, Linnell, Linnell Eugene. She got my attention now. Naaman didn't, didn't need just three times. See, God meets us where we're at seven times. It didn't do it on the sixth time. I think, Scripture doesn't say, but I think Naaman dipped down the sixth time, looked, said nothing. But that seventh time, that complete obedience to Jesus Christ is what it took. How about you? Where is that complete obedience in your life? We have opportunity. We can see a lot of things. There's a lot of things we can see in Naaman's life. We have an illustration of baptism, which is a sacrament. If you go on to read the story, and I hope you will tonight, this afternoon, it's not much more than a couple of chapters, a couple, cha couple paragraphs later, we'll find that after Naaman is washed, 
He wants to take the dirt of Israel back with him. He makes a, play, a, a statement that I know that Israel's God is God. And he wants to take the land home as if that's going to do something special. You know what? If I took you all home with me, that would be something special. It would be special to squeeze you all into my apartment, but it's also special to realize that I have brothers and sisters who are going to watch my life so scrupulously that you will kick me in the butt when I yell at my wife. You will become accountable to me, but that means you have to be consistent, that you have to be confidential, that you have to be concerned, that you have to deal with what I do in love, that I can trust you, and in truth. Today, we have the opportunity to come to the table, to sit at the table in my house. Number one, you're invited. Most of the time, the people aren't invited are the ones who are part of the family. What does it take to become part of the family of God? What does it take? Do you have to do anything to become part of the family of God? Or has it been done for you? When Jesus has touched your life, just like Naaman was touched, God shown through him in a very, very new and unique life. He knew that he had to bring something with him to remind himself of the fact. As the elders come forward, remind you that Jesus has given something to us to remind us of the fact that we are family, that this is his invitation to you all of you who have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you become a member of his family. You don't have to be a member of this church. You are a member of his family. And because he is your authority, you have to listen to him completely. Not just the first time, not just the second time, not just the third time, but the seventh time. So I invite you to join with us, to join with the elders as you come to the table. Men, would you come forward?